You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We are Canada's number one tech radio program. And what a show we have for you today. We are going to be talking about artificial intelligence art and how it's going to be affecting jobs now and in the future. We've got a great guest. Uh, his name is Seth Rutledge, friend of yours. Yes. He is in the graphics field when it comes to film and television. Yeah, he's an illustrator and a concept artist. And has worked on shows like Supergirl and Snowpiercer, Batwoman. So he's got a lot of experience in the industry and he is a fascinating person to talk to about this because all this new AI-generated art, the tools that are available, he's got some really interesting thoughts on where that's all going. And it's, it's as you can imagine, going to change that industry. Absolutely. Seth's been sort of doing kind of stuff in my mind, leading edge ever since I met him. I'm the, one of the first things I saw him do, which I thought was really cool, is he used VR to do concept art. Oh, great. So he'd wear a headset yeah. and then he'd go inside and use special tools to create his spaceships or whatever he needs to do for his work, at least as far as, you know, inspiration. Yes. Just to sort of get the basic shapes and those kinds of things. But it's a really cool thing to watch someone that knows what they're doing yeah. do in VR. And we want to talk about this, you know, especially here in Canada, Vancouver and Toronto, and, you know, even in uh, Montreal, Calgary, there are so many schools now punching students out for graphics, for the film industries, for video game work. This, this new technology, you know, the artificial intelligence is going to change that. So it's really important to listen to this if you're, you're thinking about getting in the field or if you are in the field as well or know someone. Let's talk about some of the news, uh, John. This was kind of interesting. Do you remember that free U2 album back years ago? That everyone hated? Yeah. So after one of the Apple announcements, uh, Tim Cook basically announced that uh, Apple was sticking a free U2 album in your iTunes account. The horror. And downloaded like directly to your phone, I guess. Yeah. And people lost their minds. If you were a fan of or are a fan of U2... Hey, cool, free album. So I'm having a hard time with this because I'm a big U2 fan. So when I heard that announcement, I'm like, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Yeah. But no, if you don't like U2. Well, the thing is, they didn't make it easy to get rid of it if you don't like U2. <laughs> yeah. But this is, keep in mind, this is back really before streaming services yes. had happened. Before Apple Music and you, streaming. And you had to buy your albums even yeah. digitally. Yeah. So this is basically a free album. Yes. That you couldn't, return or uninstall, it came by default. Well, Bono in a recent interview now says that he gets it now and basically has taken the fall for it. He says uh, it was all his fault because he thought that this was an amazing gift and it was a, uh, a really great and interesting business opportunity at the time. But now he can see why um, some people didn't like that. Yes, which is still weird. Yeah, I guess. Like, for, it, you of know, all the things for people to get upset about. Yeah. Here's something free that you don't want. Yeah. You don't have to listen to it. I'm just trying to think of an artist that I don't love. Yeah, I don't want to name anybody, but... Okay, the Tragically Hip. I know they're Canadian. Not oh, my favorite band. Oh, you're going to get hate mail about that. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. I just, I don't love them. So I'm just imagining if Apple stuck a Tragically Hip, hip album in, on my phone without me asking. Are they going to take away your passport? <laughs> I think they are. I think they are. Talented band, but I just, I don't love 
the music. But anyway, so if they put a Tragically Hip album on my phone, would I, would I get upset? Like, I don't, I would just. Well, and also keep in mind at this time of this 2014, yeah. UT was arguably one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. So like you couldn't avoid them yeah. even if you tried and then they shoved it onto your new device that you just bought. What do you do? Uh, we're talking about all the latest uh, tech news uh, here on uh, Get Connected. Still lots of stuff going on with Twitter. Uh, you know, you've seen the news, John. Elton. Elton. <laughs> Elon. Elon. Uh, basically going back and forth on whether he should buy Twitter. And now he says he's back again. But if he buys it, he's laying off 75% of the staff. 5,000 employees. And now the U.S. government's stick, you know, stepping in saying, hey, I think we're going to look at this whole deal now because of security issues. Yeah, because it's a national security issue. But I think, you know, we just wait five minutes and something else will change on this topic. Yeah. And this flip-flops more than anything I've ever seen. Like, the reasons for him wanting to get out of it or the reasons for him wanting to keep it. Because I saw something interesting. He wants to turn Twitter into the... Um, the WeChat for Americans. The, the app that you can do everything with. You can socially... The Asian one. Yeah, that yeah. you can chat with, you can pay for things, you can do all kinds of things. And, you know, no question, WeChat's an interesting model. So kind of like a, almost like a WhatsApp as well. Like it's going to be yeah. a messaging. Because you can message with Twitter. Yeah. But I, is he trying to turn it more into that? Well, he's trying to turn it more into... Uh, do everything app. He okay. literally wants to just Payment, copy WeChat. messaging, yeah. Yeah, all those things. It's not wrong. No. Especially with the increased scrutiny that the gov U.S. government's putting on Asian-based technologies and apps, right? Yes. I mean, didn't Trump try to kill WeChat? Uh, he tried to pretty much kill everything. Yeah, TikTok, WeChat. Yeah. So he's not wrong. But, you know, what are you, what are you doing when you say you're laying off 75% of the staff? Like, that's... That's a good motivator. <laughs> what, for people to leave? Yeah, well, not want to be there. No. Well, we'll uh, continue to follow that story, and God knows where it's uh, going to go. I mean, Twitter is worth so much less than when he made that offer. Mostly because of him. Because of him. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's his plan. Well, he wanted to buy it for less. Yeah. Okay, we are going to have to take a break here and get connected. When we come back, we're going to talk about how artificial int intelligence is going to change the graphics industry, especially when it comes to uh, making graphics and animations for movies, TV shows, and even video games. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike and John here. Etsy, Shopify. These are uh, big platforms that people use to sell stuff online. And they're compelling because they make it easier for you to create an e-commerce website. Etsy is a very popular one, John. Not only does it give you the tools to actually create your own online store, but it's, it's like a community as well. Kind of like a, almost like an Amazon marketplace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the place that comes up when you Google anything that's, handmade or custom made or crafted, those types of things. Um, and it's a good place to find a lot of similar things that, you know, maybe you don't quite like that one thing that you found, but there's probably somebody else selling something similar or their own take on it. So it's pretty easy to find uh, stuff to buy, gift ideas, all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of crafty stuff there. A lot of crafty stuff because it's really meant for the sort of the small home 
uh, business type person or the the maker or the crafter uh, that doesn't want to worry about all of the other businessy stuff and they just want to focus on making stuff. Yes. So that that is a that's a big reason for people, right? Because they want to make their stuff, they want to sell it, they don't have to worry about all the techie stuff. Yeah, dealing with payment options, dealing with ship. Well, they have to deal with shipping to a degree, but um, but also just being found because that's the biggest problem with a lot of these people. It's like, yeah, you can have a really cool product or thing that you made, but how are any, how's anybody going to find it, right? Unless you've got really, really good search engine optimization, SEO as we call it, uh, and you have, you know, maybe a huge social media presence. Yeah. So just looking at the stats on Etsy, for example, uh, back in 2020, I haven't got the latest, latest, but they had over 81 million active buyers yeah. through Etsy. So that's compelling. Yeah. But it's also challenging though too, John, as you know, you can't just set up a, a store in the middle of a field yeah. out in the middle of nowhere and hope people will get there. Yeah. People have to find it. Yeah. So what are some of the things that people should be aware of? It's, it's the fees. Yeah. I mean, this always <laughs> kills the dream, if you will, Yeah. because they pay it. You, you basically pay a monthly fee to, to, to have a store. Uh, or or uh, a shop as they call it, and you have the ability then to upload your products, put prices on it, choose where you're going to ship to, those kinds of things. But you're you're paying quite a lot of different things. And I've heard from a lot of people in the community that I'm a part of that make stuff. And as you know, I make a lot of stuff with Cricut and my laser cutter, and my 3D printers, all this kind of stuff. There's transaction fees. There's like monthly fees. There's advertising and promotional L- listing fees. fees listing fees, right? Like the transaction fee is like, I think as high as six and a half percent. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the big thing for me, if I was to put something on Etsy is the challenging part is how much does that product going to be after all the fees are factored in, let alone your wholesale cost to make that thing. Right. So let's just say you're making a widget and then you're going to sell it for $10. Well, if you've got a bunch of fees, you've got, you know, the, 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 the raw cost of the material that of whatever you're making your time to actually make it. Um, and a lot of things on Etsy are also um, custom. So you can actually say, I, I like to have Mike Agarbo's name on my coffee mug and you can get someone to do that for you. And that is an additional administrative thing that you have to do as, as the, as the shopkeep, as you want, if you want to call it that. Um, so you have to, manage expectations with your customers. You actually have to then go and make the product for you even been paid and then ship it to them. And if there's any problem or you type, Tran- type trans- yeah. So transaction fee, there's a payment transaction fee. Yeah. There's the delivery fee. Yeah. Well then there's the returns. What if it's not right? What if I spelled Mike wrong? You know, those yeah. kinds of things. Like that's a lot of overhead even though you don't actually have a store, like a physical so store. So I'm, I'm just wondering, like, cause I looked at, this with my wife because she was making some homemade beauty products. And once I started adding it all up, because, you know, we were going to sell them for like 10 to 15 bucks yeah. pop. Once I started adding up all the transaction fees, it was not so compelling. No, no, no. no th- this is what like I, I just, it was unprofitable. Yeah. Like you have to sort of do the math and have it all figured out so that you can actually do this repeatedly. Right. Because that's the thing is if you get, found if people find something that you want you have to keep doing it right and that's something that a lot of people can struggle with they get overwhelmed with orders they can't keep up they can't they can't make it worth their while to do because they're just overwhelmed that's a good problem to have i guess in one hand because you can always hire more people but then your profits go down yeah 
Um, and if also, what are you going to offer? You're going to have all the stock on hand in case someone wants to buy it, or are you going to do it just in time as someone orders it, which could take time and de- delay that customer getting that product Yeah, because you have to go to the store, buy the raw materials, whatever it is, make the thing and then ship it as opposed to just taking it off a, a shelf in your garage. So what price point do you think you'd have to be at? And like, what kind of profit margin would you have? Like, cause we were looking at selling these things for 10 to 15 bucks, like a jar. Yeah. And you know, we're basically doubling what our you know, anticipated cost was. But yeah. once I put in the transaction fees and everything through Etsy, yeah. it got insane. Yeah. Well, and that's what a lot of people find is they, they spend all this time and effort setting up these stores and I'm not just picking on Etsy either. There's yeah. other places you can do this like Shopify and, and a few other different places like that. But the, the, the reality is, is you really need to figure out what the magic number is for it to be worth your time. Yeah. Especially if it's a physical item that you're shipping, right? I've seen a lot of successful people talk about the fact that they don't have physical items, they do digital items. So if you're a designer, for example, you can sell your designs for people to then put on a mug or a t-shirt or whatever it is, but you're not doing that fulfillment. You're actually just creating the design and you're putting it up on uh, the internet. People can download it. Etsy and other services like that have the ability to securely protect your design so that only the person that bought it can have access to it just which is you know a compelling option if you're a designer yeah but you don't even have to well, be would you recommend people starting off with like if they're just trying to get into e-commerce starting off with like an etsy or a shopify yeah i think a lot of people probably graduate from that if it's something that they want to get into you know seriously as a full-time business i'm sure there's plenty of people that are doing really well on etsy because they've figured out the pricing model. And that's the key thing before you even spend any money on this stuff, figuring out how much it's going to actually cost you. And sometimes it's hard to do until you've actually gone through the process. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll, they'll figure it all out on paper. They won't have anything set up and then they'll just sort of test it with their friends. So then there's Shopify. Yeah. They don't have like a kind of a marketplace so much as Etsy does. No, I think the the secret sauce with, with Etsy is the fact that it's got really good optimization. So people, if you're looking for some random Star Wars thing, yeah. you're probably going to find it on Etsy, even if you just do a Google search yeah. for that. Because uh, they've just, they're really strong in that space and they're really strong in promoting those uh, people that are on their platform. But like we said, there's a cost associated with that. I've heard some stories where after you get to a certain uh size or volume of sales, they actually start auto charging you for promotion because you're bubbling up in sort of the rankings on Etsy. So they're actually going to promote you more, but you have to pay for that promotion. (laughs) And I don't think you can opt out of some of that stuff either. So looking at Shopify, you know, their credit card rates, which is, you know, again, this is appealing because you know, they look after all that. Yeah. Security. Uh, It's all really important. You can't just do this by yourself. Yeah. And I'm looking at some of the U.S. pricing here, but um, it's 2.9%, which is not bad. Yeah. Um, but also 30 cents U.S. per item online. Yeah. Or per uh, transaction. Um, but also, you have to have a monthly plan with them. Yes. So, like, the basic plan starts at about 29 U.S. If you want to go up to the next one, it's like $80. And the, the advanced one is like 300 a month. So yeah. you're going to be doing some volume there, obviously. Yeah. And you'd want more advanced reporting and, and multiple people being able to, multiple staff being able to use it as well. So, so one of the options that I was looking at to use is um, 
basically not using one of these platforms and doing my own website that has e-commerce in it. And a lot of sites now, when you go to create a website, uh, there's, you know, WordPress, there's Squarespace, there's a bunch of places that make it really easy for you to set up your own sort of shop or even just on Instagram, for example, you can actually just be a seller on Instagram and your Instagram uh, profile is your shop. Yeah. But you have to still have to click through to buy something. Exactly. So there's a couple different ways you can do that with um, different uh services that allow you to do that. And one of the systems that I used that I thought was really cool is, you know, created by the guy that created Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Square. Square. Yeah. yeah. So you can actually, they, they have these little terminals you can buy for fairly low cost. They used to have the little swipers that you would plug into your phone when it actually had a headphone jack. They actually have the ability to create an online inventory. So you can actually do transactions just on your phone. That's pretty good. Yeah. And you're just paying the transaction fee for the credit card. But if you want to take that online store that's on your phone, like for you as the seller, you can actually pay and have it turned into a website. Got it. That you can embed into, you know, a custom domain. So like Mike's custom t-shirts or whatever it is, and it's all there. So that might be a different option as well. I mean, there's so much more to talk about this. Uh, and we, we will in future shows go through a little more in detail, like how these specific sites work, because I know more and more people are interested in, in doing this. We're gonna have to take a break when we come back more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You're back with the program. Mike and John here talking with Seth Rutledge. Super interesting topic. We we have been chatting the past few months now just about artificial intelligence, the, the speed and pace at how fast it is growing and evolving and revolutionizing is simply amazing. We've talked about some of these uh, photo and image tools where you can basically type in what you want, like anything, and it'll make some pretty photorealistic or, or very artistic images. And Seth, you mentioned this in the last segment about the fact that there's still a human creating these phrases that are being fed into the machine. What do you think about the fact that that's almost become a commodity in itself? There's literally websites where you can buy phrases for AI generation now. Oh, I think that's silly. I mean, it's I, I totally get why it's there. But I mean, you're talking about a technology that literally isn't even six months old yet. So people yeah. are going, but like, remember how it was when HTML came out back in the early 90s and everyone thought it was magic and like, here's these secret codes you can use. And, you know, within two years, it didn't matter. And that's that's how these key phrases are going to be too. Like right now, we're in the not very user-friendly stage of doing this stuff. Like, it's just kind of like, oh, we're, we're entering these weird codes and we're doing stuff and no one really knows what works, but you give it a year and it's going to, that'll be a complete nothing as far as I can. We, we've, we've already started to see that. I, I use stable diffusion on my Mac and the there's a UI interface for it that literally has like pick and you just choose things like, oh, I want this style with this thing. And like, it's getting, it's getting easier. Like, like in the style of Van Gogh. And yeah. Like you just, oh, yeah. no, it's like, I, a, I, it's like I, a menu, right? Like. It is. I mean, and and even if the keywords aren't in there, the stuff to set it up for the to set up the syntax will be like that. I'm using one on my PC that I, I play with to generate some like inspirational ideas, and it's the same thing now. Yeah, um, but I think that prompts as prompts are not art. I think that the, I think I personally think that the end result can certainly be qualified as art, but prompts are just helping people think about 
how to get something out of it. So, I mean, like you watch a YouTube video on how to change the, you know, I don't know, garbage disposal in your sink. You watch someone tell you what kind of prompts generate the right things, but you know, same kind of vibe. So I, I look in Vancouver and Toronto, you know, we're based here in Vancouver. Uh, Seth, there's like, I, I could throw a rock and, and hit a, a film or graphic school. You mean mm -hmm. like they are churning people out like there's no tomorrow and they're just getting gobbled up by, you know, the gaming and film and TV industry because there's just so much work involved. Like if you were to have like a crystal ball, just kind of looking 10 years out, like what should these, these, uh, these people wanting to get into this field, what should they be studying? Oh man. So, so we're, what we're seeing is we're divesting technique from results. So going in to study technique is going to give you less and less bang for your buck as you go. So entertainingly, in some ways, a more traditional liberal arts education is helpful because it gives you a context to know the kinds of things you want to generate, not how to do it. So the fact that and I went to Emily Carr, but that has nothing to do with anything. But the fact that I know the Fauvists and the German Expressionists, and I can talk about mid-century modern, these are all the kinds of keywords you want to use to generate something effectively. So if the only thing you've ever been exposed to is I play video games and then I learned how to model things for video games. You don't have the vocabulary to use these tools effectively, even if they're easy to use. You don't know what you don't know. Well, I, I just think about video games uh, now, Seth. I, I'm just imagining these tools are becoming just that much better and kind of generating worlds on themselves. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. you don't even need humans <laughs> to create uh, a world. Hey, I need a tropical island with a bunch of trees. I'm, I'm sure there's like uh, some software tool out there that will do that now. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. But the, the question is, how many generic tropical islands do you need? Like you're right now, we're in the oh, this is neat phase of something, and people are doing that stuff. But like the number one complaint artists have about looking at people doing this AI stuff is the sameness of the results that come out of it, because everyone's using the same things to generate the same generic tropical island and yeah you can but there's not really that much need for it it's professionally are they almost um, are they almost becoming like djs i look at like a lot of these popular djs like they're basically re-spinning redoing people's existing tracks and putting their own kind of touch on it yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't even like I hesitate to say it's it's just remixing because like people bring into this. You're just stealing other people's art with this stuff. And like, no, it's generating something. We'll call it new for lack of a better word. But the, the question is, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, but like 90 percent of everything that gets made is crap. It's gonna, <laughs> you know, like it's kind of a law of, of, of things. And here's the thing. If, if you want to use this tool professionally, 90% of the people doing it are crap and won't do it. So what, because if you're generating something generic, then your client can do it for you easier. Like there's no need. This the, the So yeah, you could just make a tropical island and it would generate it and it would get used. But I think you'd be much better off thinking about what makes my tropical island different from everybody else's. And that's where the human element comes back in. It ceases to be about technique and becomes a, much more again about concept. Um, 
you know and like so star wars the concept art for new hope the co- the costumes were literally scribbled on a napkin and a diner placemat that's how lo-fi they were because no one cared about the technique he was just getting the idea across and then with the rise of photoshop and everything else we've seen very you know sexy concept art that you know looks super splashy and i think you're still going to see that just now it's going to go back to being about that concept again i wonder who's going to be affected the most over the next 10 years like I, I just look at for example in my my office we do a lot of presentations and websites and right now we've we've got like a team of graphics artists that will help us make those but i mean there's so many tools now i mean a lot of these website tools can generate through templates but also now i'm looking at our powerpoint presentations and now you know we hear that microsoft's actually building in a text to ai image generation tool into their next version of powerpoint you know will these mid-level kind of when I, not mid-level, but just, you know, a certain type of graphic artists kind of die, like the engravers, oh, like the engravers of, of the past? Yeah, I think so. I think that, that the, the, getting into this industry is going to get harder and harder because the entry-level jobs are going to get scarcer and scarcer. So you're going to have to be able to, in some senses, support yourself past when in the old days you could have worked to get the skill so that you can work now, you know. Um, but... Yeah, I think who's going to be affected the most? Think of this tool as a real-time stock image generation tool. Yeah. And if you think of it that way, you can kind of see who's going to be impacted the most for it. It will be food photographers because it can do great stuff with that. You know, it will be um, illustrators for less specific things. Editorial illustration is going to get nuked. Editorial. Um, there's there's no reason to pay anyone to make an editorial illustration when you can generate, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump sits on a gold toilet throwing money, and have it just generate like it it's just done that. And you you mentioned before the break about copyright. The thing with editorial illustrations, they don't even care because it's so topical that it gets used, it gets made, it makes it point, it goes away. No one gives a damn. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to stop you right there, Seth. Copyright. That is something I want to talk about. And we're going to keep you on for one more segment. Who owns this work? Is it the person that typed the text in to, to make it? Is it the person that made the tool, the company that made the tool? Well, we're going to get Seth's uh, thoughts on that. When we come back from the break, more on AI generated art in the future. Back after this. You were back with the program, Mike and John here. We've got Seth Rutledge on the line. He is an accomplished uh, graphics TV concept artist. Uh, he's worked on shows like Supergirl, Batwoman, and Snowpiercer. It's Batwoman, not Batgirl, right? Yeah, it's Batwoman. Batwoman, yeah. We yep. don't talk about Batgirl. Batgirl was a movie that never happened. <laughs> yes. So, well, maybe yeah. it will in AI now. So we've yeah. been talking about artificial intelligence and how it's going to dramatically change i'm i'm saying those words dramatically change that whole industry when it comes to creating images and even video down the road uh, as well the one thing that you just started to touch on seth was copyright so typically when an artist makes something uh they either own that outright or the company that they made it for like i imagine when you're making stuff for the snow piercer tv series they own that that imagery mm-hmm. right Yep, work for higher stuff is what they call it. Pretty yeah. simple. So when we're using these tools now, like how do you feel about that? Like who should own that? Okay. Who should own? So 
going back a ways, when photography first started, you couldn't copyright it. It took almost, I think it was over a decade after photography was invented, may even have been longer, before it was allowed to be copyrighted. Because people were like, you're just showing the image of the person that's there, and you can't do that, you know. So right now, the answer for copyright is no one owns it. Um, it is equivalent to monkeys typing on a typewriter. Like <laughs> no one owns the copyright for that. Um, but it gets more complicated with the, than that for things like art. So somebody recently copyrighted a comic book that was entirely generated using AI artwork. And the thing is, the individual images are not copyright, but the images placed as a whole inside of frames, whatever, becomes a copyrighted image work. So other interesting things, if Disney generates an AI image of Mickey Mouse, Disney, it is copyright to Disney because Mickey Mouse is a copyrighted character for them. So you, the image itself doesn't need to be copyright. You just can't copy it because it has Mickey in it. So those are two big ones. And then, of course, the final one is people keep going, what's going to be like the music industry with copying? Well, the rough and ready music industry thing is about what if it's changed about 10 to 15 percent well so that means i can generate an ai image and go in and paint on top of it in photoshop for five minutes and change enough of it that it is no longer simply an ai image and then my version because copyright and then the final thing of course is as it gets better and how are you going to prove how it was made <laughs> if, I make an, if I make an image in AI and hand it off to somebody and say, I painted this or I made it in 3D or I did whatever, how are you going to know? Like, it's going to be a really interesting thing. And because of all those factors, I tend to think that within the next five years, it will be copyright by whoever made it. So there's a long and short to that. To further muddy the waters, Seth, the other thing that we've started to see some people maybe questioning as opposed to any kind of real legal threat is the fact that all of these AI engines are are fed by imagery from the internet, from giant you know, uh, mm -hmm. stockpiles of imagery, especially when you start getting into things like, you know, inspired by Dali or inspired by, inspired by Picasso. Like those are all things that the engines need to know what the source material is. And so, you know, art from art is one thing, but there's, we've seen even some examples where people's, you know, like, like if you were to get a photorealistic, say, office scene with people in the office, some of those heads could actually come from actual photos that are on the internet. Like, mm -hmm. it gets yep. really murky that way. It gets the entire, so our entire copyright system is already woefully, woefully out, out of date for technology and has been for decades, quite frankly. Um, but you're right, it does get complex. In terms of the training, I mean, that's a big hot button for a lot of um, digital painters right now. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm not going to say anyone is right or wrong on it, but my personal thing is that when I was in art school on my iPad, I literally had 26,000 images I had downloaded from the internet and kept as reference to look at to get ideas from. And I learned from them, and then I made my own things that were, at least in some cases, inspired by those things. Now, 
I understand the scale and the efficiency of a computer doing it is vastly better than what I was doing. But if you say you can't scrape the internet to, to learn things, how do you differentiate I scraped the internet because we're calling it AI. It's not AI. There's no intelligence. I scraped the internet, made a database that analyzed images and kept key features of those images and then used that database to create something new later versus I made master copies and that's how I learned to paint. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that it's it's a toughie. So you're saying, course, you're saying humans need to learn and that's how they, yeah. they learn their looking at the world they're looking at the internet and computers need to do the same thing they just do it a million times better than we do <laughs> a million times gonna, faster i'm even saying more than that the computer's not learning anything there's no learning involved it's not ai the computer is analyzing a bunch of images and creating a very complicated database that is then used to generate images so it's you know if i it's completely legal for me to go online and look to find the top, I don't know, hashtags that are used to drive site traffic and then put those on my website. How is this any different? It's not. <laughs> we're, we're, we've been talking with Seth Rutledge all about the murky, murky future for AI generated art, imagery and video. And this conversation will continue for a long time into the future. Seth, I want to thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It was great. Thanks for having me. A lot to think about, John. I know. I know. I'm just like, my brain is like on fire right now. Okay. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, a little more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected, Mike and John here. Don't forget to listen to our sister show, The App Show, on every Sunday or right after Get Connected here, Saturday nights uh, in Toronto. GetConnectedMedia.com. You can uh, listen to the program there and also subscribe to our podcast. Uh, something that I think we should talk about next week's show, uh, we talk about these Raspberry Pi little computers. Yep. We recently purchased a Pi Top uh, expansion for it. You can do all sorts of things. You make robots and media players and computers out of these Raspberry Pis. Well, this Pi Top is like a an empty shell of a laptop. It's got a screen keyboard and you just plug the Raspberry Pi in. And it's got a giant battery too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. The, the, the only kind of disappointing thing is that you can't buy this one anymore. They were blowing them out and we got a crazy deal on them. 60 bucks. 60 bucks Canadian yeah. delivered. That's including international shipping from Europe. Isn't that insane? Yeah. I, I, and I love it. It's just, I know. it's great. I bought one because of you. I know. You're like, you got to buy this. Yeah. So I mean, 60 bucks for the, the laptop shell and then the Raspberry Pi. What is that? 50 bucks. 50 bucks. So if you can find one. So you got a laptop for hundred-ish dollars. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to talk about it on uh, one of the next programs and uh, some of the cool things uh, that we're going to do with them as well. I want to thank all the folks that helped put the program together. Of course, John Beeler, my co-host and producer, and Robin back at the studio. This is Mike and John for Get Connected. We'll see you again next time.